Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Lebetard and I wanted to talk to Jackie McMullen for a number of reasons, one of which is to let you know how much I admire her and why. We'll get to that in a second. But one of the things you're going to discover in this, her pioneering journey, is that for 10 years, the people at the Boston Globe who helped her assimilate into an all-male world didn't know she was a woman. She's going to explain that and more here. Here's Jackie McMullen. I hope I'm not embarrassing her here because it's not something that I've said to her before. And really, I don't know her well enough to say something like this. But just watching her work from afar, Jackie McMullen has been an inspiration, a pioneer, an icon, uh, making her way through the labyrinth that was Boston sports and a male-dominated field in Boston where it could be difficult for a woman to make that kind of climb. I've just marveled at it, Jackie. So allow me to start there with you. But when I use those phrases, do you look at yourself that way? Because I know a lot of women in broadcasting, and it should be more than just women, do look at you that way. I mean, Dan, you know the answer. No one wakes up in the morning, I don't think, not anyone I know, and says, I think I'll be a pioneer when I grow up. You know, I just was like everybody else. And I guess I should say, like all the guys in my neighborhood, I wanted to play street hockey in the morning. I got out there first. So I was in the first game. I loved sports. My dad was a traveling salesman. He came home. He's a New York native. Came home with the Daily News, the New York Post. I was reading Dick Young and Pete Vesey, all those guys. And I just thought, wow, I really want to do this. And nobody that looked like me was doing it or not many. And I thought, well, but maybe I'll try anyway. So that's really all it was. It's just, if you really like something, and I love sports so much, I played sports, not, you know, not as well as the people I cover for sure, but uh, that I could ever take something I loved like writing and then sports and put it together and get paid for it. Are you kidding me? I'm sure you feel the same way, don't you? Oh, but yes, but it's so much easier for me though, Jackie, because all I saw was a whole bunch of people who looked like me able to carve out that path. I don't know. One of the many reasons I'm fascinated by what you chose and why you chose it is how lonely was it for you? Did you see many other women or girls growing up who had this kind of interest and could fit among the boys in this world? Because I imagine there weren't a lot who looked like you. No, it was, so when I was growing up, because when you're a kid, you don't know any better. I was always the only girl playing in the street hockey games. And then I got older and looked around and thought, doesn't anybody think like I do? So the lonely parts were when I was younger, when I was an adolescent, you know, then you got to high school and you start playing sports and you start running into people that are somewhat like-minded, that are competitive like you, that care about if the Red Sox won or lost, you know, cared whether Jerry Cheevers crossed the blue line and skated to half you know, halfway across the ice and shot, what is he doing? You know, you could have that conversation with a very few amount of women. But the the reason why I was so lucky, and I say this every time, I went to work at the Boston Globe. I went to work for Vince Doria, who became a legend at ESPN, as you know, as well. And I worked with Bob Ryan and Will McDonough and Lee Monfill and all these legends, Peter Gammons. And they just, they were like, hey, all right, do you know what you're talking about? Good come on in, we got your back. And I know that didn't happen other places for other young women in the industry. So I was so lucky to start with Vince. Don Squire was my next boss, another fantastic uh, guy. For, for, people just- who don't, for people who don't know, you're talking about Jackie McMullen joining one of the great powerhouse sports sections in the history 
of sports journalism. And it was all white men and all white men welcomed you in in, in a city that has a reputation for being uh, less than friendly in those circumstances. Well, here's the here's the secret. My name was Jackie McMullen. No one, I wasn't on radio then. I wasn't on TV then. Everybody thought I was an Irish Catholic guy from Southie. I was really a Protestant female from who was born on Long Island. But that was my secret for the first 10 years I worked there. So people had, a, you know, they read my stuff and they thought I was a guy. So they're like, well, this guy sucks or, wow, this guy's pretty good. And Jackie, it gave you're me a kidding. You're I'm kidding not. me. No, I mean, You spent really, 10 when years I've, with people thinking that you were a man. Well, maybe not 10. That might be an exaggeration. But, you know, when I started to get out there a little bit or to be at games or to start do other things, they're all like, I remember I did a radio. My first radio show ever was with Eddie Edelman, who was a legend in Boston, radio guy. He had me on. And the first three calls were like, wow, Pissa, I thought you was a guy, you know, because... And that was, I thought, a good thing, because if my name was Nancy McMullen, maybe people are judging me early. Maybe people aren't giving me a chance to either succeed or fail, which we should all have the right to do, right? And you loved it how much that you realized how early that you were going to do this as a career, that you were going to chase. You said your father was an insurance salesman, right? Well, just a salesman, traveling salesman. He sold paper boxes. He actually worked for Robert Kraft, if you can believe that. You can't make that up, can you? He worked at Rand Whitney. He was Bob Kraft's, one of his top salesmen. He sold packages to, you know, Gillette Packaging and um, Parker Brothers. Like, we had great Monopoly games in my house. Let's just put it that way. So my dad was a newspaper guy. He loved newspapers. He brought them home. I think he probably secretly wanted to be a journalist himself, but... You know, you were crazy to go into our industry back in those days, right? Probably crazy to go into it in our days. But I, I remember I was in the fifth grade, and I went on a field trip with Mr. Pender, my math teacher, and we went to the Honeywell computer plant, and the computers were as big as a, you know, a room. They, were, they weren't laptops, and they were these huge computers, and I thought it was the coolest thing, and they printed out for each of us, each student, our names, so J written with all little J's and A's. And I thought, this is just, what an amazing day. And I'm sitting on the bus ride home with Mr. Pender. And he said, why don't you write something about it? I don't know why Mr. Pender said that, but he did. So I wrote something, I went home and I wrote something out longhand. And they ran it on the very last page of the Westwood Press, which was a weekly newspaper. And I saw my name and they spelled it wrong. Not, not the first or the last time that happened. And I was like, okay. So I guess it was an ego trip in a way, right? I saw my name and I thought that was cool. And I said, wow, this would be really cool to do. You got your first byline in fifth grade? Yeah, yeah, I did. Mr. Pender, wherever you are, man, thank you. I hope you're still alive and happy. He was a great teacher. Well, here, let's let's head down this path then, because I, I do love what you must have learned along the way, but the idea that somebody sprinkled some confidence, some inspiration on right. you in fifth grade where you're like, why don't you do something on this? And then you mm -hmm. would then get people to pat you on the back. Hey, that's pretty good. And then mm. you would keep chasing that as a dream if that's where if that's how you remember it. That because that's the only way you can pioneer is if somebody's giving you permission, right? It's too hard right. at that age to not to, to to be different. That's right. And you know, my parents my, we were three girls. My parents were like, well, you can do anything. Because I kept saying to my dad, I don't know, there aren't that many women. He's like, well, then do it. You'd be the first and you could do it. I never had any. And then I went to high school and I had a coach. Uh, Kathy Delaney Smith was the basketball coach at, at my high school. And uh, she's now the coach at Harvard. She's the winningest coach in Ivy League history, more than Pete Carrill. 
Look it up. She's amazing. And imagine having someone like that in high school who was fighting the day she got tenure at our high school, filed a sexual discrimination suit against the high school. So talk about having some somebody that was telling you to go out and do things that nobody else was doing. So you're always, you're always glad when you have people like that in your life. Now, there's plenty of people along the way that aren't so helpful and aren't so interested in having you succeed. But those aren't the ones you ever remember. At least I don't. Well, Steve Harvey still sends a television every year to the teacher who told him he would never be on television. You have a lot. You don't have You don't have a lot of obstacles like that. People who were actively playing defense against uh, you trying to do something that, you know, was off the beaten path. Well, you know, there were some old school newspaper guys that I'm sure, uh, you know, I know they didn't like me there. And some of them vocalized and some of them just got up and left when I came and sat down at the press table. But I don't know. I was surrounded by legends who were saying, yes, you can do this. I mean, Will McDonough, I called him my godfather. He really was. He's the one that, uh, you know, for those who don't know, Will was a legendary football writer and the first one that got us all on TV, Dan, right? Well, He's let's, the one that, let's, do, let's you know? do this, though, Jackie, because I want the people to know who sort of grandfathered you in, although grandfather is too strong, because you're talking about legends in this business. And mm-hmm. the famous story about McDonough is that he punched out an NFL cornerback and left him yes, in a, laundry, a laundry hamper, correct? Uh, I think it was a locker. Yeah, Raymond Claiborne. That's a true story. And white first day of work, Will and the, the uh, news, the was he the news editor? The, he was one of the top guys on the masthead. Got in a shouting match my first day of work at the Globe. And I just sat there and, and Will's like, come on, let's take it outside. I thought, what the hell is, what is this place, you know? Will was not to be messed with. He was a, he was a born and raised in Southie, um, had great connections. He's the one that taught me, one of the first things he told me was, when you're calling for someone, because remember in the old days, no cell phones, Dan, you got to call the office. So if I'm calling Red Arbeck, he would say to me, get to know the secretary, get to know her name, find out what the name of her children are. You have a conversation with her before five minutes before you even think about talking to Red Arbeck. You know, little things like that, that get you, so where you, where you need to go. Will, Will was amazing. Amazing. So so old school, legendary, tough guy, probably, I'm going to guess a hard drinker, but I might be stereotyping no, there. No, 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 um, he did not drink because he had a heart condition. He didn't drink at all. In fact, um, yeah, no, he, Will was not a drinker. No. Nope. Okay. But badass by just, a, oh, God, a, like, yeah. Scary badass. Just yeah, badass. scary. Okay. And yep. now you've yep. got Bob Ryan as well. Bob Ryan, yep. legendary, and he is coming in and welcoming you that you have never seen a passion for sports like Bob Ryan's, correct? Nobody. Yeah. And, and, and a, he has an encyclopedia for a mind. We, we'd go to events together. I'd sit right next to him. And the next day, I don't remember any of it. I'm one of those people. I write it and forget about it. I don't remember the details the next day. I can see Bob nine years later and he'll say, remember when we were at that stadium and, and Bird hit that shot, that 20-footer, remember? And then Mikhail came down and blocked it. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, man? That was six years ago. But Bob, Bob is the greatest game story writer that ever lived, which of course is also a lost art in our business today. But again, someone that helped me immeasurably. And then add, they, my big three were Bob, Will McDonough, and then Lee Monfield, who I would argue was one of the greatest sports columnists of all time. Could make you cry, make you laugh, make you mad. So imagine having those people as your mentors. Pretty good, you know? Did they force the sports establishment to accept you? Because I believe you were fighting for some of this stuff as Lisa Olson was being 
barred from the locker room mm. in New York and people weren't what, you know, and Jack right. Morris was saying, I'm not, you know, I or dropping right. his towel or whatever it is that Jack Morris did. Like when there sure. was a hostility 30 years ago, 30 years before hashtag me too, for women right. in the locker room and, and an active push against you getting in. Yeah. So Lisa Olson was a little behind me. I was a few years older than Lisa. I'd been in it a while by the time that happened, but that to me is still the biggest travesty in the history of our industry. What happened to Lisa Olson? Again, for those who don't know, she was covering the Patriots. A bunch of players surrounded her, made lewd gestures, lewd comments. And by the way, Lisa Olson did not report it. Somebody else did who was in that locker room, another writer. And I still, so because when, when back in the day when Lisa Olson and myself and Christine Brennan and Sally Jenkins and Jeanette Howard and so many of the people I Mary Schmidt Boyer. I don't. I'll, I'll leave someone out. But well, but you can name are, them. You can name them because there were so few. You might leave a few right. out, but uh, there, right. there were not many of you. If there were, if there right. were two dozen, it would feel like a lot. Right. But my point would be, if we had an issue with somebody, we dealt with it. We didn't go. And I'm not saying what happens today is wrong. I'm just saying that's how you survived back then. You just dealt with it and you moved on. Now, I will tell you, I remember Bruce Hurst, who was a pitcher for the Red Sox, great pitcher for the Red Sox. He was a Mormon. He had real problems with me being in the clubhouse. He just didn't want me in there. He wasn't abusive because that's not his personality. But he made it difficult to do my job. All it took was Peter Gammons to go in and say, look, she's a kid. She's trying to do her job. She's pretty good. Give her a shot. And to this day, if I saw Bruce Hurst on the street, I'm pretty sure he'd give me a really nice hello. So yes, those legends gave me some credibility. But the, the one that gave me, the, there were two people in Boston that gave me the most credibility, and that was Larry Bird and Red Arback. Because once they said, she's okay, you're kind of off and running in that city, you know? Well, tell me about that, though, because I think your story is a fascinating one for our times, your journey, because along the path, you had a whole lot of white people in Boston introducing mm -hmm. you and giving you permission to now enter the most sacred of basketball worlds, the Celtics. Right. And now you can learn about race and the progressive league and you can cover it better than anyone from the inside the way Bob Ryan did and somehow mm -hmm. making connections with all these guys across the culture gap and across the generational gap. Right. But it's funny because... Really, the people that you know put their arm around me first was Dennis Johnson and Robert Parrish. They were the first two, for real, that went out of their way. And particularly Parrish, who really wasn't good to anybody. He was very stoic, very uh, closed off. And I said to him once, I did a really long feature on him. That's probably one of the things I'm most proud of, because he just never talked to anybody. And I said, why? Why did you let me do this? He said, you remind me of my mother. Now, I was young. I was in my 20s. But I think so many young black men in those days didn't have fathers. And they've, they've often, Charles Barkley said to me, father, I didn't even have a mother. I was raised by my grandmother. And he said, so I, I, Charles Barkley was the one that said to me, yeah, you, I figure you know how I feel because every time I walk in a room, I'm the only black dude. Every time you walk in, you're the only woman. So I think maybe there was a kinship there. I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't want to speak for them, but that's a, a story that certainly Charles shared with me in later years. So I think for me, the way you make it, male or female, in our industry is just be authentic. You can't try to be something you're not. I, I, I wouldn't even attempt to be one of the guys. How could I possibly try to be that? Uh, a lot of my fellow journalists, after games, if we're on the road, they'd go out for beers afterwards with the team. That's not something I ever did, especially for that time period. 
I thought that could get me in some trouble if I ever broke a story or had information that someone else didn't have. So, you know, did I have to work a little harder? Yes, I did. But I, I will always contend that done properly and professionally, there was an advantage to being a woman. I would ask them anything. I would ask those guys absolutely anything. And I think I would ask them questions that some guys were just too cool or too stand or nervous to ask. Do you I'd think, ask anything. Do you think you could get around the bravado to some real vulnerability there just by connecting in a place that's not quite as competitively alpha where you're always masquerading around in muscles and have to not show anyone mm -hmm. that you have a softer side? I, I think you've nailed it. I think that's a lot of the time what happened. I mean, the way I made it in this business was to convince people to tell me something they hadn't told anybody else. And, uh, and sometimes... You know, I remember once I was doing an interview with Teddy Bruschi of the Patriots. He uh, really liked all the linebackers. And I had written a column, a little critical of Belichick for, for making Ted Johnson a linebacker inactive for a Packers game. And uh, I got a lot of crap for it, you know, because Belichick was untouchable. But what I didn't realize was in that locker room, the linebackers, I got all the linebackers by doing it, just by taking a stand. And so Teddy, I was doing a story on Teddy Bruschi, and my idea was to do this story you know, here's this maniac on the field, but off the field, he was always so calm, so normal, so quiet. And I, my thought was, how do you turn it off after the game? How do you become this guy? So he said, come to the house. So he invited me to his house. I remember I did the interview. He was holding his newborn child, Dante, who's probably, I don't know, a teenager now. His wife was there, who I loved. She was a lovely lady. And, uh, and I'm asking him this question. And he's kind of looking at his wife and he gave me an answer. And I thought, all right, there's something going on here. And to make the long story short, what he told me was he wasn't able to turn it off when he was young. He'd go out with the guys after a game, drink his face off, and then drive home impaired. And it was causing problems in his marriage, in his life, in his, his work. And he finally realized, you know what? I got to stop drinking. And so he came out with, you know, he told me all this, and he's looking at his wife. Should I do this? Should I do this? She's like, yeah, you should do this. You should do this. So I left there, and I'm like, this is a pretty big story. And he called me the next day and he said, I'm just not sure about this. I'm, I'm not sure. And I, and I said, you just got to trust me. This is going to be a great thing for a lot of people. And so those are the kind of things that happen if you can get someone comfortable enough to believe you can tell their story in a meaningful way. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Man, we was just watching Celtics versus Nuggets last night. And the catalyst to the party, the vibe, the vibe changer, the mood increaser was the Miller Lite cooler in the middle of the living room. Salute the Miller Lite, man. And when you're out having a great time, oh my goodness, you want to reach for a beer that's reliable. And I cannot name, think of, or even ponder a more reliable beer than Miller Lite. Can you dig it? Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Hmm. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Yiddick! Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? 
Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at getyourguide.com. It's interesting that you say that because there does feel to me to be a bit of a lack of humanity in how we cover mm -hmm. some of these people. And when they don't need anything from us anymore, the idea of building trust between them is somewhere in the care of what you're talking about. Because when I think of Brewski, I think of a not notoriously terrible interview who is going to simply uh, propaganda the Patriot way at every turn and defend. And we mm -hmm. call him Baghdad Brewski around here because he will just defend anything <laughs> anything the Patriots have done. But you, you found something there just because he let you pass one of the guard gates, right? Or you had the That's facility. Yeah. You, ha you had the facility to get past some of the guard gates. Yeah, and, and Brewski was, you know, I think his... You know, his, his knowledge is, I think he's really knowledgeable about football. But there's one thing you and I both know, Dan, for many of these athletes, not all of them. Certainly Kendrick Perkins has no problem ripping the Celtics, for instance. Charles Barkley will take on anybody. And as, and as a result, his former best friend, Michael Jordan, doesn't speak to him any longer. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. When you talk about what Red Arbeck and Larry Bird did for you, what is that? Well, I think they just gave me credibility and by that so with red it was red didn't want me in the locker room it's a hey, let's make it clear did any of us want to be in the locker room it's uncomfortable but it's part of our job so let's be clear about that um and red said i don't want you in there he said tell me whoever you want and i'll bring him out i said red the best way i can describe this to you is let's say you're drafting a player and everybody else gets to go in and talk to him and spend time with him and then when they're all done in that environment, you know, they're in the gym with him, they're watching him work out. But, but then when they're done, they bring him out to you. Are you going to understand him the same way that everybody else does? And that's the way I explained it to him. So what they did from that point on was they gave the guys bathrobes, you know? Now, here's the thing. My experience in the NBA was there was a 10 to 15 minute cooling off period. We're talking about the 80s now. And whenever they opened up the locker room, almost all the guys were dressed anyway. So now if they didn't want to be dressed, they had on a bathrobe. It, they were, the solutions were easy, you know. With Bird, I think it was just simple. With Bird, it was always simple. Do you show up? Like, I was so afraid. Because remember, I am after Bob Ryan, 1988. I take over the beat full time for him. How'd you like to do that? It's like taking over for Newt Rockney, for God's that sake. That is, that's and pretty so, hard. So you're you're scary. following the you're following the best game story writer ever, ever. At, the, at the Boston Globe in the sport that yeah. they care about the most. You can't make a mistake, right? You can't make well, a right. Mistake. And I, and I'm I'm scared to death. So I went to everything. You know, they had two of the days in preseason. All the media went in the morning. I went at night. I went to both. I was just so afraid to screw up. So Bird noticed that. Now I didn't find that out until 15 years later, honest to God. I have, you know, one day, I mean, I did, I've done a couple of books with Larry and at one night I'm like, why did you like, let me do all this? He goes, cause you showed up. That was his answer. You showed up, but I didn't know that for a really long time. Wow. So he didn't tell you, he was just noticing from afar because he was astute, how much you cared. And he, yeah, and he admired, he admired someone willing to put in the work because they, that's cared. right. Yeah, and that's just, Larry, he told me the story. It was a great, we had a great beat writer for the Quincy Patriot Ledger. His name was Mike Fine. Great guy. Really good um, ex-basketball player. Really good journalist. And Larry really liked him because he'd give it to Larry. He, he wasn't afraid of Larry. They'd go back and forth. There was one game on the road when Mike Fine got terrible vertigo. Couldn't get out of his bed. Was vomiting. You know, couldn't, couldn't go to the game. Made the, made the road trip, but couldn't go to that game. I think we were in Sacramento. And years later, Larry said to me, yeah, Mike, fine. I liked him. But, you know, he didn't go to that game because he's like Bob Ryan. He has the same kind of memory. 
I said, Larry had vertigo. He couldn't even walk. He couldn't stand up. And Larry's like, should have come to the game. I mean, like, you can't well, win with well, that well, guy. Well, no, but you must have some of the, you must have all, the all-time best bird stories. There, I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here with the most yeah. legendary ones, but everyone's got their favorite bird story because, uh, and you probably knew him in a way that very few did. And certainly very few did professionally. Right. And and honestly, the reason I know him is because I don't tell those stories <laughs> if I'm truthful. You know, I was, you know, I would like to think that over the years, he, I became someone that he knew he, you know, I could trust. Now, listen, one of the hardest things I ever wrote in my life was when I was doing the Sunday notes for the globe, which was an honor and a privilege to this day. It was an honor and privilege for those who don't write, know for for those who don't know, the Sunday notes in the Boston Globe were a bit of, uh, I don't know, the most prestigious real estate anywhere in sports journalism. Oh, it was, it was, and again, daunting, scary, and you better have original stuff. You know, you better not. When I, just a quick aside on that, when I worked at Sports Illustrated for five years and they hired me literally to do just that for them in the weekly magazine for a few years, a couple, three, four years, they had a weekly notes column. I don't know if you remember that, but they did it with all the sports and they hired me to you're basically, for those who don't understand, your career is making sure that you are funny and insightful and have a page devoted to some things in sports that no one is going to have seen anywhere right. else. It's going to be sharp, right. concise, and it's going to be one of the most popular things anywhere in sports entertainment. So when they hired me as Sports Illustrated, they said, don't worry, we have a whole staff of beat writers from across the league that will send you stuff every week. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And they were all mad at me because they lost their jobs, which I should have thought more about. I should have just kept them on and not said anything. But I'm like, no, no, no. I'm getting my own stuff. That's what I always felt set us apart at the Globe. You went out and got your own stuff. But one of the hardest ones I ever wrote was that Larry Birds turns out to be human. His skills have diminished because of all his injuries. And he's having trouble understanding his place in the new hierarchy of the league. That was a hard column to write. A really hard column to write. But I did. And it didn't. He, he never cared about anything as long as it was fair. That's all Larry ever cared about. So didn't get upset about you writing that. But then how do you navigate the journalism, the writing of books, the mm -hmm. befriending, the moving around, right. the conflicts of interest? This has been a sure. story recently because of Adam Schefter. And, and we were talking about it here. That's not a great look, obviously, journalistically, to be spending sending to anybody who's a source, uh, Mr. Editor, and help, yeah. making it appear like they're controlling the copy. But it also shows right. that Adam Schefter does care about the relationships, which you have yeah. to do, right? Because you're navigating yeah. some conflicts covering Larry Bird, profiting from Larry Bird, having to criticize Larry Bird. That's a It's a minefield. Right. Well, and I did not write books with Larry Bird until he was long retired in both cases. And when I was doing those books, my employer and I made an agreement, I would not cover Larry Bird. I was in no position to do it and therefore would not. And I never did. I couldn't cover him during the times I was doing those things. So that was just an agreement that I thought made sense for Larry and for myself. But where do you stand on just being proud of work that you were able to do? Because this was a legend that you were writing about with a very unique access for the history books mm -hmm. in a city that really cares about this sports legend above all others. And right, you were writing right. things that no one else had access to. Well, Larry, like I said, this is why I get back to saying how Larry Ger Bird gave me the ultimate credibility by letting me in, by sharing things with me. Um, the first book I did with him was called Bird Watching. It was when he was coaching the Indiana Pacers. He had some things he wanted to say. 
I was surprised by some of them. I mean, he eviscerated uh, Jim Paxson in that book, eviscerated him, you know, and that went back to their playing days together when they played together. Some of that stuff surprised me. Um, when what we did, did the, when for, the game for was the, for the audience that doesn't know what. Yeah. Did he say? So so at the end of Bird's career, as I mentioned, he was having trouble, you know, reconciling as all the great ones do that he is no longer the greatest player in the league. He might not even be the greatest player on his team at this point. And so there was two stories that came out, one in the Boston Herald, one in the New York Post that Peter Vesey wrote about how players on the team were upset with Larry Bird's inability to understand that, you know, his place had changed. He needed to change things. And there were two sources. And um, one of them was Kevin McHale, who later said, yep, I was part of that. I was feeling this. And Bird gave him a total pass because they had won championships together. They had been through the wars together. That made sense to him. So when Larry Bird was addressing this, when these stories came out, he said, and then the other guy has a yellow streak down his back. That was the word he never mentioned him, has a yellow streak down his back. I happened not to be there that day. I happened to be off that day. But Dan Shaughnessy, our pal Dan Shaughnessy was there. And he wrote a column saying, he never mentioned him but by name, but we all know it was Jim Paxson. Now Jim Paxson's on the, you know, they're talking about him on the Tonight Show. I mean, it was, he took a lot of heat for that. A lot of heat. And so Bird never forgave him, never forgot. And years later, he was telling me a story about um, he had an endorsement opportunity with a, and I'm not going to get it right because it's a while. And I told you my memory isn't great, but something to do with a playing card company or something. And the rep was flying in and they said, it's a surprise. It's one of your former teammates and he's going to fly across the country and do this for you. So Bird waited till he got on the plane. And then called up and said, yeah, tell him to go back. I'm not talking to that guy. <laughs> you must have some Larry Bird can be petty stories because these guys can be so competitive. Like, yeah. I, man, you had such a unique angle on some of this stuff, Jackie, because Pat Riley still can't speak to Michael Jordan normally this late in life <laughs> because of what Michael Jordan did to him. And the, the competition between Bird and Magic, uh, which was intense, and then... Hmm. Michael, Pat Riley, all of that stuff. What a unique angle to all of that you had. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, in later years, I've become much closer to Jordan in terms of we talk. I talk with him from time to time now. He gives me access now. But back in the day, my gosh, none of us could. He was surrounded by so many people, especially the, you know, the second time around. But I, I just got to understand him a little better. I remember I went down to Birmingham when he was playing baseball with the White Sox. I went down there. And the day I happened to go down there was two days after Pippen refused to go into the game for the final shot because Phil Jackson drew it up for Tony Kukoc, who, as you recall, Tony Kukoc hit the shot. So I walk into Birmingham. Terry Francona is the manager, by the way, of that team, the Birmingham Barons. I walk in there. And, and I haven't even said hello to him. And he comes up to you. He goes, can you believe that shit? That's why I'm not, that's, I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. I don't want to deal with that anymore. And so we sat down and we had the most amazing conversation. And I wrote this column about, you know, a, it was really more like a long form story about Jordan's baseball. The night I was there, he struck out three times. I'm pretty sure he couldn't hit a curveball, you know. But anyway, we had a great conversation. And I left saying to everybody, he's coming back. This isn't over. He's, he, he was asking me too many questions about the NBA. He's, he's not done. And so through the years, he was one of the most interesting people to me because I think he's a little misunderstood. And the last dance, I think he, we saw a softer side of him on camera, not necessarily from the others and all the clips we saw. But I think he's had a time to reflect a little bit about his career and maybe how he might have done a few things differently. 
I imagine one of those is not sit some of this stuff out, right? Some of the stuff that you see happening in America now where right. Le- LeBron James is such a different version of Michael yes. Jordan for our times than that you know Michael even the last dance was a sneaker commercial, Jackie. Like I enjoyed watching it like everybody mm-hmm. else, but that that thing right. was so whitewashed. That didn't have like this is how these guys are telling their stories now. They are doing it themselves so they can tell it in the way, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we can say it's it's hard truth. Michael Jordan was kind of an asshole sometimes. I mean, he was an asshole a lot of the time, just like Kobe. <laughs> felt, they felt like they had to be in order to win. They thought those two things sure. had to go together. That's right. That's right. And I think in some cases there was some truth to that. You know what I found interesting about the last dance, which again, I had forgotten was Imagine one of your most important players going AWOL to Vegas in the middle of the finals. It's so great. I mean, it's so great. It's unbelievable to relive that now in today's world. And the other thing I've always said is, imagine Michael Jordan if there was social media. I wonder how his legacy would be different. I think it could be better in some ways, but I think it could be worse in a lot of ways because he had a lot more privacy than a guy like LeBron James. Give LeBron James credit. He is the king of player empowerment and every player that comes in today should thank him and give him part of his paycheck because he has changed the landscape forever on player empowerment. Now, Jordan did that earlier too with the Jordan brand. Before that, it was stern marketing individuals with Magic and Larry, which had never really happened before. And maybe a little bit before that, Dr. J, just because he was, we hadn't seen anything like him. But LeBron has blown a player empowerment out of the water. One of the reasons that I admire you so much and Bob Ryan and Tim Kirchin, caring but also growing, making evolutions, not becoming steadfast in what your beliefs are as the sports and the culture and the journalism changes all around you. So as you see what sports journalism is now compared to what you walked into in the 80s, mm-hmm. and that's four decades of experience uh, seeing all of this right. change with player empowerment. And these guys can now manage their brands, Jackie. Reading a book by you on one of these athletes is going to be a, a, a – it's going to be a greater truth – than what it is these guys are doing now with their documentaries where you don't really get to see them, just the version of you that they want you to see, of the, the version right. of them that they want you to see. But, but what I've told them is, with the exception of LeBron James, we still tell their story better. Now, LeBron, I think LeBron's uninterrupted. I think they've done some really good things. Now, does it present LeBron in the less, best light? Well, of course it does. It's his brand. I get that. But I think for the rest of these guys, they think this is the way to go. I disagree. Not all of our, you know, we don't always tell stories in a whitewash way, but I think what I've learned and they should learn is that people appreciate vulnerability. People appreciate people who have made mistakes and learned from them a lot more than guys who want to pretend they've got it all figured out because we're all human. And I think that's the part that these guys are missing when they put out these whitewashed propaganda pieces. I don't think it really helps their image. I think people read it like you do and say, or watch it like you do and say, all right, I didn't learn anything. That's the whole thing. We want to learn about these guys. We want to learn about the good things and the bad things because none of us are perfect. And our vulnerabilities and our mistakes are are what make us who we are. If you don't learn and grow from that stuff, you're not going anywhere. Why did you leave ESPN? Why did you retire? How hard was any of that for you? Well, you know, I signed a three-year deal last fall and I I was ambivalent about it um, for a lot of reasons. I have elderly parents. That's a big one. And, you know, the day I retired, God bless him, my poor 96-year-old dad fell on the day I retired. So he's my new full-time job, to be honest. So that was that was a big part of it. But part of it for me too, Dan, was just, 
the, the industry has changed. You asked me before how it's changed. Um, at ESPN, for instance, they're an entertainment company in many ways. And they should be. That's where they're, all their money lies. They're, they're putting games on the air. It's television. Now, I got hired there originally as a, as a dot-com person that had a television presence. And I think television is their bread and butter. I understand it. But I guess I always view myself as a writer at heart. And uh, my new contract that I had signed was heavily TV. And look, I loved Around the Horn. Those guys were the greatest. They're going to be my friends for the rest of my life. That you know, But that show took a lot of effort. If you wanted to be up to date on every single sport, which I felt you needed to do if you're going to do that show properly, that was a lot of time and effort. I just turned 60, and I was my daughter lives in Denver. I have a son who's in the city. My husband was semi-retired, and he found us a house on the seacoast of New Hampshire. And I'm thinking... Why, why am I doing this why, when I could take a kayak across the street? And, and, you know, I just felt like for me, it had run its course, I guess. That's really how I feel. How about the journalism and what you're, the distinction you're making of seeing yourself as a writer versus a television person? Mm-hmm. Did you not think there was a space for the journalism that you do there? I think there's a space for it, but I just don't think it's a priority for them. And they're in a television network. I get it. I get it. I, I, I mean, if they're, if they're looking at the bottom line... The dot-com isn't driving their their financial success. So I just, uh, for me, I just, I was tired. I was tired, you know? I really was. I was a little bit out of gas, if I'm really honest about it. And the pandemic, again, my whole job is to sit down in a room with people and to get them to tell me things. And I didn't do that for over a year. And then I thought, okay, so I'm going to go back. And who is it that I really want to talk to? Like, who's... Like, where's the, the, you know, what's the white out? Where's the interview that I'm dying to do? And I looked out, I looked around, and I really couldn't find one. So that tells me it's time to go. That's interesting that that self-awareness, right? Because you're talking about this journey, as we've talked about, is from fifth grade, where right. you just yeah. knew that, that where, where you identified with something, you were pushed towards something, you were called, you were supported. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, I'm assuming many of your best relationships are all through navigated through this world. And, at, and then you look up and you're like, well, I've, I've done a lot of things here, and I'm not being called with one more curiosity. So let me let me bow out now, and I guess probably grieve a portion of your identity there. Even though I'm guessing you'll you'll still do some writing, and you'll do much. I don't see you not creating stuff. Well, I just think it's going to be something different. I don't think it's going to be the day to day grind of you know. One of the things I did when my contract was up the previous year, and they were asking me, okay, we're going to do a new deal. And I, I, they said, so you work, I was a part-time employee because, <laughs> you know, I had healthcare through my husband. So that's how we got around there. I was supposed to be working 29 hours a week. I mean, I, some, no, I was but that's working 29 your, hours. This is your way. Yeah. And you're working, of course, 60 hours a week because it's, yeah, normal, right. because that's why Larry, that's why you're writing the Larry Bird books, because you're going to show up right, twice right. a day to be maximum informed so that, so that you can be unassailable. So there's not a hole in your game because this is the part that's unspoken, Jackie. The criticism and the pressure around you was such that you could not make the mistake that the boys were making ever because of the damage it would do to your credibility. Yeah, there was some truth to that. There was, and I felt that, but I don't know. It, it didn't bother me. It kind of excited me <laughs> a little bit. But now I'm at the, I was just looking at it and I, I printed out for them all the things I had done over the last calendar year and I gave it to them. They're like, we don't want you to do all this. We can't pay you for all this. Don't do all this. And I thought, well, this is what I do. You know, so it just... ESPN treated me very well. There was no rancor. There was no, I, I read somewhere someone said, oh, 
They got rid of this person, this person, and Jackie McMullen, quote unquote, retired. Believe me, this was my choice. I walked away from two years of guaranteed money. I'm insane. I'm not sure I did the right thing. I finally got to a point in my career where I was getting paid good money, and I, but, it, but I haven't looked back once and regretted it. I just haven't. You know, I have some peace of mind. I'm taking care of my dad. I'm doing some things that I, I'm just doing some things for myself and my family. And, and I'm not saying I'm never going to work again. I'm just telling you, I'm never going to work again like that. That's just not going to be the model. Well, help me then with the life perspective that you've gained here, because uh, Kate Fagan, as part of our team, wrote a very moving book about where sports and her father uh, were connected, where life through sports connected them, how she was shaped by her late father as uh, he Mm -hmm. fought ALS. And you are now, you've just told us the whole story. You said traveling salesman who gave you permission, who never, Mm -hmm. who who said, uh, you can do this, then be the first. Uh, As you tend to his care at 96 years old, what an amazing journey, Jackie, to be able to share this part with him uh, where you have arrived at, a, a more restful, peaceful place with your employment, with your career, and what life demands of you now that isn't going to the gym twice a day because you need Larry Bird to see you. Well, that's it. Um, I just wish my dad was healthier and so we could enjoy it together. One, I was hoping I would retire and my mom, and my mom's still living too, and we'd, I'd be taking them places. You know, I was supposed to take my dad to the Glenn Miller Orchestra this Sunday at noon. He's not well enough to go. So I wish it was a little different, but I'm very grateful to have both of my parents living. Hardly anyone my age does. And so um, maybe it's not exactly the way I envisioned it, but this is how life works. You take what life puts in front of you and you make the best of it. And that's what we're trying to do. And how much permission did he give you? Like how responsible can you explain to us? Like to, to be a pioneer is not to do it alone. No, never alone. I mean, I, talk about my husband. How'd you like to be married to me? Good God. You know, I'm away all the time. I'm working these crazy hours. We're at a dinner party and I got to leave the dinner table because I got a call and something happens, you know. And so, but my husband was like the same right from the beginning. We met in college. We met when we were 19. We started dating. We were 20. We've been together 40 years. We haven't been married 34 years. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. He's a real chill guy, a laid back guy. He's met Larry. He's met Kevin. But to him, they're just part of my job, you know? Maybe Tom Brady would be the one guy he would really love to meet, and unfortunately, I was never able to pull that off for him. I mean, think about, again, how fortunate I was. During the years I was at the Globe, the Patriots were winning Super Bowls like crazy. The, 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 the Celtics won only one championship, really. Well, I was there in 81, but I was 84, but I really wasn't heavily involved in that championship. I wasn't, I w- I wasn't on the A team yet, you know? So I was on the fringe for 86, but around for the 2008. The Patriots, when the Red Sox are winning these World Series, the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. I was in Vancouver when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. Me and Whitey Bulger, by the way, who, who snuck through Pat Customs to attend that game. True story. That's the gangster you, that, Whitey Bulger. That, that is how you dismount this story. This is how we end the conversation. That's how gangster Jackie McMullen was. She, she you <laughs> snuck in with Whitey Bulger. You, what are you? What are you doing, Jackie? You're like you're part of all of Boston's fabric. What are you doing at the side of Whitey Bulger? I was not. I did not know he was there, but he was there. I you just smuggled never saw him, him in, Jackie. You smuggled Whitey. You're an accomplice. We have. Uh, I have to tell you one. I got to tell you one more Whitey Bulger story. So Will McDonough, God rest his soul, he passes away very suddenly of a heart attack. We're all devastated, completely devastated. His family asked me to be a pallbearer at his funeral. Again, one of the greatest honors of my life. It's freezing cold. It's single digits. We're at a hall in Dorchester. 
Um, Billy Bulger, Whitey's brother, was also a pallbearer, okay? They won't let us wear coats. Do you know this about pallbearers? For some reason, you're not allowed to wear coats outside the church. I don't know what that's about. So I'm in a silk dress. We're all shivering. We go from that, as the cassock comes in, to a church that you can imagine is packed to the gills, and it's about 80 degrees in there. So we're at the altar, because it's a Catholic mass, because Will was Catholic. We're praying at the altar. We're on our knees, and Billy Bulger is next to me. And we're kneeling, and I hear this, and I'm like, oh my God, did he fall asleep? But I'm afraid to look, you know? But I look over. He wasn't falling asleep. He's about to pass out. Just as I notice this, bang, Billy Bulger passes out, hits the pew, and falls into my lap. Can't make this up. They have to stop Will McDonough's funeral in the middle of the funeral so the paramedics can come in and wheel Whitey Bulger out. So, of course, Southie lore is that Whitey Bulger, who was also Will's friend back in the day from Southie, was disguised as one of the paramedics and wheeled out his brother and paid his respects to Will McDonough. That's Boston, man. <laughs> Jackie, thank you uh, for spending this time with us. It really has. It's been a pleasure to, to read and watch your work over the years. I appreciate you, Dan. Thank you very much. want to thank you again personally for supporting South Beach Sessions and everything we're doing around here at the Levitard and Friends Network. It will continue expanding over the next couple of years. We ask you to rate, subscribe, and review on Mystery Crate, which is always improving and always a mystery. On Stupidity, Billy Gill is producing over there, and you've seen his imprint on what they're doing at Stupidity. So please, the Levitard and Friends Network, we ask you to tell your friends and subscribe and rate and review where you can find Stupidity, Mystery Crate, and South Beach Sessions. Talk to you again next week. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Man, we was just watching Celtics versus Nuggets last night. And the catalyst to the party, the vibe, the vibe changer, the mood increaser was the Miller Lite cooler in the middle of the living room. Salute the Miller Lite, man. And when you're out having a great time, oh my goodness, you want to reach for a beer that's reliable. And I cannot name, think of, or even ponder a more reliable beer than Miller Lite. Can you dig it? Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Hmm. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Yiddick!